Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal and political topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. We've gotten used to weeks that bring, at best, a mix of good and bad news in our high-stakes, ongoing battle to reassert the values in Superman speak of truth, justice, and the American way that have been under steady assault in the age of Trump. But the week past brought a series of strong blows in favor of equal justice and the rule of law. The Department of Justice secured convictions for the rarely brought charge of seditious conspiracy against the leaders of the Oath Keepers group. The outcome, huge in its own legal terms, also strengthens the social understanding that January 6 was what it looked like, a heinous, purposeful crime orchestrated by enemies of democracy. The 11th Circuit Court of Appeals brought to an abrupt and forceful end an episode in judicial activism and special rules for former presidents by a Trump-appointed judge who had continually thrown sand in the gears of the Department of Justice's investigation of the Mar-a-Lago document scandal. A court in the District of Columbia required Trump White House lawyers Pat Cipollone and Pat Philbin to give testimony unprotected by executive privilege to a federal grand jury investigating Trump's conduct and statements around January 6. The very next day, the two Pats spent a combined 10 hours in the grand jury and almost certainly provided new and highly inculpatory testimony of Trump's various schemes to upend the 2020 election. Notwithstanding these series of legal triumphs, the political landscape is preparing to take a rocky turn. The imminent ascent of the House Republicans augurs an all-out assault on the work of the January 6th committee, which is in term paper mode to get out its final report by around Christmas. And the new majority, perhaps but not certainly presided over by Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House, is planning a series of sand-in-the-gear efforts and MAGA wishlist items but not before the Dems try to usher in a few more achievements in the lame duck period. To sift through these good, bad, and politically uncertain developments, I am pleased to welcome three of the sharpest commentators in the country. And they are... Katie Benner. Katie covers the Department of Justice for the New York Times. In 2018, she was part of a team that won a Pulitzer Prize for public service, for reporting on workplace sexual harassment issues. Previously, Katie worked at the Times' San Francisco Bureau, and before that, she was a reporter for Bloomberg and Fortune magazines. Speaking of fortune, it's our very good fortune that we can call her a regular on Talking Feds. And so welcome back, Katie Benner. Always pleased when you can join us. Thank you for having me here. Aaron Blake a senior political reporter for the Washington Post, where he writes for The Fix. He's covered politics for over 20 years and is one of the country's foremost political reporters. He previously reported for his hometown Minneapolis Star Tribune and The Hill newspaper. Aaron, thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having me. And George Conway, 
a prominent attorney, a contributing columnist at the Washington Post, a co-founder of the Lincoln Project, and a founding member of Checks and Balances, a group of conservative and libertarian lawyers standing up for the rule of law. Also a seasoned Supreme Court advocate, George successfully argued the 2010 case Morrison v. National Australia Bank before the High Court. George Conway, it's great to welcome you back to Talking Feds. Always a pleasure, and thanks for having me. All right, let's start with what I think is probably the biggest item in a pretty news-packed week. That is the Oath Keepers verdict. So nearly eight-week trial, followed by three days of deliberations and a D.C. jury of seven men and five women returned guilty verdicts on the leading charge of seditious conspiracy against Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes and his Lieutenant figure Kelly Meggs and three other defendants were acquitted of that charge, but everyone was convicted of obstructing Congress, a serious charge in itself, and there was otherwise a mixed bag of convictions and acquittals. Let me start with what it looked like before versus now. And Katie, if I can direct this at you based on your knowledge of DOJ, there's been reporting that, you know, there was kind of robust debate in the department about bringing the charge in the first place. (laughs) Is that right? And what do you account for the debate and the decision? Sure. I mean, I think, of course, it would be very robust debate because this is a really, really serious case. And you don't want to bring it if you think you're going to lose. If you look at the Justice Department manual, it's you bring the most serious charge that you believe you can prove in a court of law beyond a reasonable doubt. And so if you don't think you can do that, you wouldn't bring the charge. Now, that said, they did bring the case and it was mixed. It wasn't a slam dunk because three Oathkeeper associates who were part of the proceeding were acquitted on the sedition charge. And they had a mixed bag vis-a-vis whether or not the jury was convinced that the members of the Oathkeepers who were convicted of sedition had actually conspired specifically to attack the Capitol in order to stop the peaceful transfer of power, or if it was simply that they wanted to stop the peaceful transfer of power and this attack on the Capitol is something that arose a little bit more spontaneously. So it was a little bit mixed for the department, which indicates why there was so much robust debate and why this was a very serious discussion. Got it. I mean, I actually saw that aspect, the mixed bag part, as reinforcing the big ticket item of the seditious conspiracy conviction of the two. And it also served to underscore to me the integrity of the verdict in the sense that the jury was paying very careful attention. But I've heard thoughts on both sides. Aaron or George, what do you think about that aspect of things? Well, I agree with you. I mean, I think it's always it's always interesting when the jury picks and chooses among the charges and with the various specific defendants. I mean, it shows that they were, again, trying to match up the case against each individual with elements of the charge. And that's a good thing. And the fact that the Justice Department got everybody on obstruction is great. And the fact that they got the two senior guys, they got them on on sedition is is also great. Because a lot of people will doubt, expressing doubt about the ability to prove this sedition charge, that it's harder, much harder than, than other charges and shows it's a viable tool. First conviction since 1995 on it for the department. Aaron, you, you're not in your head? Yeah, it was something of a split decision with the acquittals on that particular charge. But don't lose sight of how historic this is. I mean, the last time we had seditious conspiracy charges brought was back in 2010 against the Michigan militia. Those charges were later dropped. 
Before that, you have to go back significantly further, more than a quarter century before anybody has been convicted of this at the federal level. And so, yeah, the decision about whether to bring those charges is is a difficult one. It's a difficult thing to prove. But, you know, this is also something that a year ago we had people, Fox News hosts in particular, saying, look, if this was an insurrection, why haven't we seen seditious conspiracy charges? Shortly thereafter, we actually did see those charges. And now I think we have more than half a dozen convictions of that crime, both pleas and actual jury trials. So it it does reinforce the severity of of what happened in case there are people out there who still harbor doubts about that or, or want to have others harbor doubts about that. Yeah, I think that's a huge point. And there are more trials to come. I actually think it dovetails in another way with the point that Katie was making, because I think it was rational for them to say Rhodes and Megs really revved everyone up without necessarily giving them the blueprint for the attack on the Capitol. And moreover, that's kind of a regular MO of some of these guys. The defense that Rhodes made was predictable in saying, you know, a lot of overblown talk, and I didn't really mean they would do that. Juliet Kayyem has a good piece in The Atlantic making the point, stochastic terrorism is the term mean, meaning just this, having everyone generally kind of raring to go, but trying to have deniability as to the specific act of violence. And there's certainly moral guilt there, I think all of us would say, and now that it's married to legal guilt, I think that matters a lot. What about the sort of Trump universe, the whole universe, I guess, but what does a conviction here portend for either the Willard War Room crowd or even the White House crowd on January 6th? Is it completely a part or a sort of shot in the arm, would you say? Well, I don't have reporting to suggest that this means that there's going to be a slam dunk charge against Donald Trump and that right. this is something that people inside the Justice Department think is is the next step. I think it just says to them that if they have evidence as strong as what they had in the Stuart Rhodes case, that they could get a seditious conspiracy conviction or that they could get a conviction on obstructing Congress. Now, keep in mind, this is an interesting situation because if you look back at the evidence, Lots of text messages, lots of messages back and forth between Rhodes and these other actors who were convicted of obstructing an act of Congress, where they specifically talk about their desire to obstruct Congress. So, I mean, that is pretty strong evidence. And I am very curious as to whether the Justice Department is going to find such strong evidence between people like figures who are in the White House and people who are on the ground that day actually attacking the Capitol. I think they're sure going to find the emails if they have the will. And really what I mean is not what's the inside plans of DOJ, but man, you go this far and you go for the home run on seditious conspiracy with this crowd, it seems like really paramount that you follow through completely to the political actors and maybe the sort of shadow crowd like Roger Stone. Or or, or do you think that's overly sanguine? Yeah, I think they have to feel confident after this, that they know what it is they have to do to prove these cases and that a jury in the District of Columbia will take it seriously. Again, I mean, you know, there'll be the question of whether or not the the evidence, as Katie points out, is comparable or at least sufficiently comparable. I mean, obviously, it's going to be different because it's at a higher level. But I think it's going to be pretty clear 
that these people were trying to, let's leave apart seditious conspiracy, they were trying to stop the electoral vote count from happening. That was the name of the game. And, you know, whether it be by sending it back to the states, by rejecting electoral votes, and by causing disruption. I mean, that was the object because he knew, Trump knew, and all of the people around him knew that it was game over if they went through the role of the states and counted to 270. And they had to stop that somehow by delay, by intimidation, by getting Vice President Pence to violate his oath of office and the Constitution. And you know, some of this evidence, I think Eastman's, what uh, from Eastman's files is pretty good on that. The question is, what did they tell Trump and what did Trump say? And, you know, we don't have full visibility into that. I mean, we see some of it from the January 6th hearings, but we're going to get, you got to be pretty sure that Cipollone is saying a lot more to the FBI and to the Justice Department and to the grand jury than, than he did to the January 6th committee. You know, he's not going to get away with saying, well, I'm not going to tell you what he said and, or communications I had with him. I'll tell you my thought process. I mean, that's just not going to fly. Right. All right, close out question on this, and I'd like to pick up on Aaron's point of the arguable historical important. I wonder if, in fact, the broader social historical impact here is to bring us two-thirds of the way toward seeing January 6th as the kind of existential danger and revolutionary act that it was. In other words, this ongoing debate where you have elected officials poo-pooing it and saying, you know, political protests getting out of hand. Are they now swimming distinctly more upstream? Does the jury verdict have an important role in that respect? Or is it just an isolated judgment that won't move the social dial much in that direction? I think it's always tempting in these situations to say nothing matters. You know, we've, we've been through so many of these Instances where the reality and the facts on the ground seem to point in a very clear direction, but a a large portion of the country that gets their news from not this podcast and, and from not the same sources as you and I just isn't getting the same kind of information fed to them. And there there will be a significant portion of the country that is never going to believe this is an insurrection because they're invested in that. But just kind of brass tacks. We now have, as I said, more than half a dozen, I believe it is, convictions for seditious conspiracy. There was a a proven, according to our legal system, conspiracy to overthrow this election, to undercut our government, essentially. And I think that is an, an important part of the historical record. And I think that's part of the reason why I would imagine the Justice Department did decide to go down this route instead of sticking with the, you know, obstruction of an official proceeding type charges. This really does beyond punishing people who did these things. It records it in history as a a very singular event relative to the lack of seditious conspiracy uh, convictions that we've seen in in recent history. I so agree with that because I I like to think of not what the 30% of the Republican base that will never accept that Donald Trump could ever possibly have done anything wrong or the people who watch Fox News. I, I always think of what they're going to teach school children 50 or 75 yes, yes. years from now. And this was an attempted coup. And I this is one step. The January 6th hearings were another step. And I think there are going to be more steps where, where the historical record is going to be clear. I mean, even if it doesn't result in a conviction of Donald Trump himself, it's going to be clear that there was an attempt to disrupt 
to overthrow the Constitution of the United States. I don't think it can come out any other way. And once the passions of the day and the partisanship of the day passes, I mean, there's just going to be this cold, hard record of what everybody did. And, you know, I, I hope I live long enough to see that. I think that that historic lens is really important. And I think that's the one that we should be thinking about a conviction like this through. I also think that it's sort of fascinating to see what's going to happen with violent extremism in the nation after this verdict. It's not something that you can necessarily prosecute your way out of. Seamus Hughes, who's wonderful, and he works with the George Washington Center on Extremism. He said that, I believe, in an interview with Politico, and he is correct. And so the other piece of the historic lens is not just the marker that the Justice Department has laid down by achieving a successful conviction. It is, to George's point, what did we do with it? How did politicians respond to it? How did people on the ground respond to it? And it's not necessarily political parties. It's, you know, this idea that we have created, even if Trump went away, the idea would remain that the government overreaches, that the government interferes in the lives of citizens, and that this movement was necessary to combat something wrong with our government. And so I think that that is a bigger idea that we're going to need tools, perhaps other than prosecution, to start combating in the country so that this doesn't happen again. That's another point in the Kayyem piece is one such tool is just putting people away for life, not just Stuart Rhodes, but recruiting is the name of the game and being a winner seems to be really key to recruiting. But on the point you've made, I just want to say that makes uh, four of us. I really agree. 75 years from now, high school textbooks just report as a fact that insurrection occurred and I think give a sentence to this trial. And conversely, the next time Marjorie Taylor Greene, whoever gets up and gives this crazy and even monstrous narrative that it was, you know, all benign, they will look more marginalized this week than last week because of the verdict. Anyway, knock on wood and hope so. All right, let's go to the next side of this broad, broad attempt to push back the January 6th committee, which really is hurtling toward the end. I mean, it literally ceases to exist at the end of the month. I want to focus on what it's got left to do. So first, there's been reports of trouble in paradise with staffers disagreeing with Vice Chair Cheney's take on what the report will look like and the gold team and the blue team and the purple team, et cetera. Do you have a sense of the state of play there and what the final report is going to look like? Yeah, so Chairman Benning Thompson said that they're close to, I think his quote was pens down on the, at least the initial draft of this, obviously due by the end of the year, by December 31st, he suggested that it could be in as early as before Christmas. I would think that, you know, if they can get it out, not in the middle of the holidays, they probably (laughs) would want to do that. Uh, I would like for them to do that personally, but you know, that's me. So I think that's the big thing right now. The other portion of this is, are there going to be any referrals to the House Ethics Committee for members who didn't cooperate with their inquiry? Are they going to obviously do a criminal referral involving Donald Trump? Although I think that's probably either a done deal or less of a big question because it's really DOJ's decision here. And then criminal referrals for people who didn't participate in this that they can send over to the Justice Department and try to get them to do things. I I think the question is, you know, how hard do they want to push this when Donald Trump has 
these other problems that he's dealing with, including Mar-a-Lago documents, including Fulton County, including Manhattan, which I think we're going to talk about later on. Is this something that is about, you know, getting things on the public record and putting this report out, or do they really want to push hard and put some pressure on the Justice Department to actually prosecute, I think is is really the big remaining question here. Hey, Katie, this is kind of a side issue, but I thought it was noteworthy. Zoe Lofgren, I think, states this week, we will give things to the Department of Justice not a minute before the public gets it. Certainly DOJ would have liked it sooner. Do you detect a kind of undercurrent of tension or some kind of arm's length bristling between the committee and the DOJ? You know, I've never really understood the committee's reticence to give information over to the Justice Department. There is no way in any planet, any world we know where the Justice Department will move faster than this committee. We know they have a hard deadline at the end of this year. We know the pace at which the department moves at. So I wasn't really sure how they felt they were going to be undercut or undermined. And so it was really curious to see that happen. And I'm not sure if it's something about Their oversight process, I'm not sure if it's something about their suspicion of the Justice Department, their dislike of the department, or the fact that they just wanted to operate really independently. You know, some of the discontent that you referred to earlier stems from Liz Cheney's very particular view of how information should be shared on this committee, including the fact that she herself was not willing to share information about key witnesses like Cassidy Hutchinson. And Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony blindsided members of the committee. They had no idea what she was going to say. So there is something about their particular hold on information that is very specific to this committee. Also keeping in mind that Kevin McCarthy has already vowed to investigate the investigation. So this committee is like never going to end because now it's going to be investigated. We'll have a new committee on the committee. Um, So this, (laughs) oh, I know 2023 is going to be really exhausting. Oh, it's a blast. (laughs) Let's stick with that. I mean, they have a good strategy. They say, we're going to make everything public. So good luck trying to say, here's what they didn't say. Can McCarthy draw blood when this all turns over into his paws? Yeah, you know, I'm not a politics expert, so take that for what it's worth. Yeah, right. But I mean, for McCarthy, with the narrow majority he has in order to have the position that he would like to have, he is going to have to make a lot of promises to the most extreme part of his party. And part of that is going to be ripping apart the J6 committee. Now, whether or not he draws blood in any way that feels very credible with the majority of the country, I think for him is beside the point. I think he really wants to be House Speaker. And that is the point of almost everything we're going to see him do in the next few months. Either of you have a sense of his prospects now? How close is it to 18? Yeah. So, I mean, we've got a a whip count at the Washington Post where we've been tracking this. Basically, there's five hard no votes, according to what those members have said. And if all of them voted against McCarthy and none of them voted present, which it sounds like they won't, and if no Democrats are absent, because it's a majority, it's not 218 votes, it's a majority of the members voting. If all five of those members actually voted for an alternative candidate, whoever that was, McCarthy would not be there at this point. So I think there's a lot of horse trading going on right now. A month is a long time. And the Freedom Caucus seems to be emphasizing that they are negotiating in good faith. But if five people want to make a point and insist that they're going to hold out no matter what, they can probably sink this guy if they really want to. Just amazing. It is. It truly is. On the question before that, obviously, the nutjobs really want the, the January 6th committee to investigate be investigated and have an investigation in the investigation. But at the end of the day, do they really want to keep talking about this? They've spent the last two years trying not to talk about January 6th. And all they're going to end up doing is just playing into those of us who want to hear more about January 6th. 
you know, we're going to hear plenty about it if, if there are prosecutions. Including members of Congress themselves right. we'd like to hear yeah. about. You know, like Katie, I'm not a political ace at all, but it does seem to me they've got a terrible dynamic, which is McCarthy's going to have to make promises if he has any shot, and to execute on those promises is going to be in the broader political context, boring at best and, you know, electoral disaster at worst, right? We all know McCarthy's a man of his word. No comment <laughs> so from the reporters. Um, Obviously, George, you just don't have the same feeling about the Constitution as those rioters do. Let's stick with the let's stick <laughs> with the Congress true. for a second. Yeah, does anyone here see tangible prospects for meaningful action in the lame duck period? You know, last week the Respect for Marriage Act passes, and there's some focus on increasing the debt ceiling or possibly assault rifle ban. Are real things going to happen before they know they have to pass the gavel on to, you know, McCarthy or worse? Well, the Senate doesn't have to ram through as many judges as they possibly can now since they still have the majority next Congress. So so that's not going to be as pressing, whereas otherwise it would have been. The debt ceiling is going to be big. I also think there's a lot of talk about a big Ukraine package in light of the threat, essentially, that Kevin McCarthy made that a House Republican majority might not support continuing to fund Ukraine. And so I think that was intended in some ways as a warning to say, look, maybe you guys should do something before we take power. Because oh, that's interesting. Kevin, that uh, almost a kind of jujitsu there. I see. I don't think Kevin McCarthy is in line with the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world yeah, who, who want to cut off that funding. And so I, it'll be very interesting to see if there's going to be a, a large scale Ukraine package under the assumption that they can't count on that money flowing once it hits January 3rd. I wonder, too, about the Justice Department, whether the Republicans in the new Congress are going to try to defund the special counsel, for example. I mean, I don't know whether anything can be done about that in advance during the lame duck session, but, you know, it's kind of the same dynamic there. What the thing that matters, I think, the most, and I have no idea, not being a political reporter, not being on the Hill, about what its chances are still is, the Electoral Count Act reform. Right. To me, that's the most important thing that Congress could deal with between now and the end of the year. And I haven't heard much about it lately, and I'm, I, I hope it doesn't die. You know, it's a great point. I'm sure those 11 senators who voted for Respect for Marriage Act are being lobbied uh, heavily. And yeah, so on the DOJ and special counsel, you know, they came out of the box when Smith was appointed saying this shows the politicization of the Department of Justice. You know, it's crazy, right? It's a, You could say this won't be effective. I see that argument. But that that move itself designed to increase accountability and independence was to them a sign of something rotten there means there's going to be people departing from the Trump train, etc. But it seems like everybody is going to be all in for castigating DOJ over anything and everything. And it's going to be really, I don't see a scenario where it's not a very ugly and contentious couple years for them trooping up to the House for hearings and the like. And the possible impeachments. <laughs> so that's hard with the majority they have, but, yeah. you know, yeah. the threat of it. It's time now for our sidebar feature, in which we ask a prominent person from another field to explain an important legal concept in the news. And the concept today is 
severance, a legal motion that comes into play frequently when there are multi-defendant cases. The multiple defendants would like to split up their trials in particular so defendant one can point the finger at defendant two and vice versa. When will a court allow that? And to explain the concept of severance to us, we're really pleased to welcome Poppy Montgomery, a prolific actor best known for her roles as Marilyn Monroe in the 2001 CBS miniseries Blonde, based on the Joyce Carol Oates novel, Detective Carrie Wells in Unforgettable, and last but not least, FBI agent Samantha Spade in Without a Trace, which I call last but not least because I had a glancing involvement with it in a couple episodes, including one I co-wrote and was able to be on the set watching Poppy go to work with words that I had helped craft, which was uh, quite an experience. So here's Poppy Montgomery on Severance. It's common for prosecutors to charge multiple defendants with the same crime or crimes. The default is that all of the defendants are tried together in a single case. That approach saves time and resources. It's inefficient to have multiple largely identical trials. And it also permits a single jury to hear a comprehensive version of all the conduct. Prosecutors favor trying all the defendants at once. But criminal defendants in multi-defendant cases often seek to separate out or sever their trials. This happened, for example, in the recent severed trials of Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes and former COO Ramesh Sunny Balwani. Courts order separate trials when a joint trial would result in prejudice to one of the defendants. Typically, that is because of particular evidence that would be admissible against one defendant but would unfairly prejudice the other. A good example is a statement that would be admissible against one defendant as an admission but would be inadmissible hearsay against the other. Another common reason to sever defendants is if there is some indication that they cannot be fairly evaluated in concert with one another. A common example is when proving the innocence of one defendant rests on implicating another defendant. This head-on conflict generally requires severance because it becomes impossible to give both defendants a fair defense given the other's position in the case. In the cases of Holmes and Balwani, the court ordered severance after Holmes said that she planned to introduce evidence of abuse by Balwani. She was entitled to present it in her own defense, but it would have been extremely prejudicial to Balwani. After the severance was granted, both Holmes and Balwani argued in separate trials that the other was chiefly responsible for the charged crimes. Both were convicted. Now, there are also times when defendants may not wish to sever. Defendants who share the same defense strategy might prefer to reinforce their strategies in a single trial. Or, given the prosecution's high burden of proof, having multiple defendants in a single trial may make it more difficult for the prosecution to prove any one defendant's individual culpability. For Talking Feds, I'm Poppy Montgomery. Thank you very much, Poppy, for explaining Severance. Poppy is currently starring in the new movie Christmas on the Farm, now streaming exclusively on Hulu. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate. 
brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thanks, Harry. In today's spirited debate, the topic of seltzers bubbles up as we aim to address whether seltzers are friend or fad. Maybe you remember your first delicious dance with Zima back in the day. But for a lot of us, our first seltzer encounter happened poolside or at the beach a few years ago when White Claw opened the fizzy floodgates, creating a surge of seltzers to hit the market. Now, it seems like every week, five new fruity flavors enter the scene, from the smallest of independent labels to the biggest of brands. Take Anheuser-Busch, for instance, who pumped a billion dollars into their seltzer game this year, proving that seltzers are here to stay. And what's not to like about that? They're fun and exciting. They're light, crisp, and refreshing. They're lower in calories and carbs, which makes them less filling and easy to drink. So for now, we say let your seltzer flavor flag fly and stock up for the summer because this is one fizzy fad that shows no signs of fizzling out. So pick up a few of the newest flavors at your local Total Wine & More. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. Okay, there's... You know, we could spend the next several hours on the legal fires Trump has, you know, all around him. You know, he's facing serious threats to his company, his fortune, his liberty, and his historical legacy in state and federal proceedings. Let's focus on DOJ for a second. Two big wins this week, right? Judge Cannon's misadventure has been basically brought to an end. You know, we'll see whether... Trump even tries to petition for cert or rehearing, but it's not going anywhere. That crazy boot on the neck's been removed. And then I think even bigger, although that's my question, I guess, just yesterday, Pat Cipollone and Pat Philbin, we were taping on Friday, were ordered to testify before the grand jury. How significant is each of these developments? Cannon out of the picture, Cipollone and Philbin's testimony in the picture. How about a week on those two scores for Donald Trump. Sure. I mean, on the Cannon decision, this is a really big deal for the department. They really couldn't finish the investigation until they could look at all the material. It's about as simple as that. It would be insane to try to bring a charge if you don't really know what you have in terms of evidence. So they'll be able to keep moving at a more rapid clip. This was a really big deal. Cannon, you know, from my sense of it, the department felt pretty confident in their ability to move toward a charge, whether or not they did, they felt confident that they had really good reason to go into Mar-a-Lago and get those documents, including the fact that they could possibly bring a charge. But the department was also very cognizant of the fact that time is a factor and that the longer things drag out, the harder it becomes for the Justice Department to act, just full stop. Canon was a problem. It is now gone, and they will move with the same pace that they wanted to before. So I think from their point of view, the investigation goes quickly at this point. The other big thing they're waiting for is the intelligence community assessment of exactly how those documents did or did not damage national security. Keep in mind, there have been times when classified information has been retained, and the IC has determined that that wasn't really going to harm national security. The great example is It was already reported in the Washington Post. And so if Hillary Clinton had it in her emails, it probably isn't going to damage national security if it gets out because the Post has already reported it across five stories and national security was not harmed. So, you know, you can see a world if it's just things like the Kim Jong-un letters and Barack Obama's letters, et cetera, et cetera, photographs of parts of different foreign countries. 
you don't really know what they're going to find, even though we took bunches and bunches of stuff in terms of how problematic it was. And so I think the department will ultimately need those two things in place, plus continued witness interviews before they can determine whether or not they bring charges. But now they can at least go through. And, and we're talking Mar-a-Lago or, or January 6th? Mar-a-Lago. There's also a flip side to that. The question, as I understand it, in a lot of these cases is sometimes that there are, there are documents that are so sensitive they don't want to actually use them at a trial. And they can't. The, the IC won't let them. Right. Yes. Yeah. So that, that's that's the other side of what, what has to go on now that they have the ability to have the IC review this in an unfettered fashion and communicate with them. And that could also harm the chances for a prosecution. Yeah. If you can't argue before a jury. <laughs> right. And not just the chances. As you sit here trying to game out, when will the charges be brought? That process probably is already ongoing, but it's a necessary procedural step that we will be blind to from the outside. There are high-level negotiations, and the intelligence community can be very feisty about what can be used or not used, and until they determine that, they can't write an indictment. So that's one thing to know about. And then your other point about Cipollone and Philbin, I think they have to hear from them because they do play a role. Remember, Cipollone advises Trump that the retention of these boxes are unlawful. So in terms of sussing out, are we really, really close or just getting there? Those two things are, to the extent we get, you know, glimmers of them from the outside are going to be pretty big. But they really got to do this by early next year. And people expect it. But why do you say that, George? You know, you, you, you can't have a trial in 2024. I mean, you could, but it's like you don't want to do that. You want to, you want to get this thing to trial in 2023. And even next year, right? I think even in the normal scheme of things, it could be a year yeah. of yeah, pre-trial stuff till it's actual swearing in a jury, no? Yeah, it depends on the judge. And George, what does jury selection even look like for um, a trial like right. this? Uh, even George, you would know. Like, what what does jury selection look like? <laughs> I, honestly, <laughs> what do you ask I, these I, potential I, witnesses? <laughs> you know, I, I, I tried cases in the Delaware Chancery Court where we didn't have this problem. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can tell you this: Can you put those views aside, Your Honor? He's obviously he said he could put the views. That's what it looks like. All right. On another front, the Ways and Means Committee takes possession, finally, of Trump's taxes only, you know, three and a half years after they should have been turned over. And we are really at the midnight hour. With the imminent switch in control, do you think the public's going to see those returns and in short order? I mean, getting them because of this, I think would be difficult and it would look rather transparent if they yeah. leaked out in the final month that the Democrats controlled the and House. And yet. <laughs> and yet, you never know. Certainly, we've seen some of them in media reports. We have the inquiry in, in New York where we can learn things about this. I think those are probably the more likely venues. Those are the documents from Mazars that they were able to get in New York. Yeah. Yeah. So what what are we, you know, if you're the person who's considering potentially leaking those documents, you know, what are we going to learn that is going to teach us something that we haven't learned from the New York Times' big expose or that isn't going to come out from the Manhattan District Attorney or from Letitia James's probe. I think that's all stuff that you'd want to consider before you decided to leak something that you just got with a month to go in, in, in the House yeah. majority. But if you are going to, you should call Aaron. I, think. Exactly. <laughs> no, I, I know some reporters who can handle it a little bit better than me. So I'll, if you can email me and I'll just point you in the right direction. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, it's a murky area. It's just these things have a way of coming out, but they really are supposed to stay under wraps. And the choice is going to be taken from them. You've heard some voices on the committee. Like, Get them out there. They're not supposed to, but it, there's this kind of hydraulic force. All right, speaking of hydraulic force, just a minute or two on the Fulton County DA. So a lot of witnesses she's been able to force to come forward. Maybe they've all taken the fifth, but... Lindsey Graham and Rudy Giuliani and Mark Meadows, witness number one to my mind. I think Stone is next. What do you think? Where's that case? And where do you put it on the overall list of the legal threats facing the former president? This is really tough because I think that Connie Willis would certainly be willing to charge somebody like the former president if she had the evidence necessary. But I think one of the frustrations in any investigation of Trump certainly the congressional, the January 6th investigation, as you see these various investigators come up with reams and reams, and this was actually in a poster about the J6 investigation, they come up with so much very good work that shows incredibly objectionable, problematic, democracy-undermining things that do not actually speak to a specific criminal statute. And so that's the main overarching problem for prosecutors right now. And since we do not know what people told that grand jury. And there's also a a possibility, this is sort of the interesting about the Pats, Pat Cipollone, Pat Philbin, is that when we were- The Pats, I haven't heard that before. (laughs) (laughs) When we were reporting early on in some of these schemes to interfere in the election, you know, I, I think people close to both of them, as well as even some people at the Justice Department who thought that what President Trump wanted to do was insane, would say he heard from a variety of people And ultimately, he chose not to invoke the Insurrection Act. Ultimately, he chose not to put to seize voting machines. Ultimately, he chose not to X, Y, Z. So what he actually did is he heard from a lot of uh, lawyers and he made, in many cases, correct choices, right? Even though if they think what he did was immoral or wrong or blah, 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 because that is kind of the way that certain lawyers are going to think. It's very narrow. And so imagine those people then testifying somebody like Mark Meadows testifying before a grand jury and saying, we didn't think it was going to work, but you know, we never specifically told him it was illegal. We batted that around ourselves, but he has a way we didn't, he didn't ask. We didn't say, I mean, suddenly you're in that exact territory that the post identified of this is so objectionable, so democracy undermining, but what are we going to prove? Should have been impeached, but that's different beyond a reason. Yeah. Other thoughts? To go back to your question about kind of what's the biggest threat here, I think it, you need to separate the where's the most likely prosecution to take place from where is the most significant potential prosecution going to be. And, and I think the Fulton County thing, all indications are that this is moving pretty swiftly and that, as you mentioned, she'd probably be willing to prosecute if if the evidence is close. I do think, though, having a Democratic district attorney prosecute, just like having a Democratic attorney general you know, sue the the Trump organization, obviously colors these things in certain ways. I still think the big one is Mar-a-Lago documents case. It seems like it's more likely to lead to a prosecution than January 6th, you know, basing that only on my suspicion and everything that we've seen. I also think it's more difficult to explain away, especially when you ran your 2016 campaign complaining about a certain other candidate and their handling of classified information. I think that this is really the one that 
potentially could have a big impact on a presidential election and, and potentially lead to very serious criminal sanction if charges were actually brought. And so I think that's the one that I'm keeping an eye on as the former president launches his campaign. Yeah, I, and I agree with that. I mean, and the way I look at this, let's set aside Fannie Willis and the Georgia RICO statute, which I know nothing about. If you just look at the January 6th investigation as something about conspiracy to defraud the United States, right, which you can use if somebody rips off money from the government, but you can also use, prosecutors can use if somebody basically obstructs a function of government. If Donald Trump had stolen $15 billion from the federal treasury, that would be a terrible thing. But only the OMB and the, and the GAO would have missed the money. It wouldn't affect the rest of the country. And what Donald Trump tried to defraud the United States of was its democracy. It is the most serious political crime imaginable. And, and I don't think any politician has ever done anything as egregious as what he did. So I look, I, I would look forward to a prosecution of Donald Trump under 371, under the obstruction statute. I don't care about seditious conspiracy, frankly. I don't have to go that far because what he did was bad enough if you, even by the elements of 371. But it's complicated, right? I mean, there's just a lot of evidence, a lot of things going on, and it's a big case to try and a lot of a lot of testimony and a lot of it. There's ambiguity here and there. Unprecedented. Yeah, and unprecedented. It's a hard case to try, even with all the evidence that we've seen from the January 6th committee. The Mar-a-Lago documents case is just simple. It's almost like a drug deal. I mean, the analogy I've been using is like you're investigating the, the five families in a big RICO investigation. On the one hand, you're the U.S. attorney, and all of a sudden, you know, you get this call from the NYPD, and uh, uh, they say, hey, you know, the, the capo, the tutti capi, or however you say that, we just caught him at, at, at Kennedy Airport, and he was un unloading jewelry out of a warehouse into a truck. That's the Mar-a-Lago case. So count me in, and as usual, Aaron Blake, dead on the bullseye. First case to be brought, Georgia, but not first case to be convicted. All right, we got to go in 30 seconds for our final Talking Five. And this week, as America goes kind of soccer crazy, the question is, World Cup, World Series, or Super Bowl, and why? I'm going to go with... World Series, as baseball is one of the only sports I've ever watched. And so I really feel like my options are limited, having never watched an entire football game of any ilk, high school, college, or pro. So I'm not really even sure what the rules are of that one. And then soccer, I just feel like I like games where maybe more points are scored. And so I'm just going to go with baseball. There you go. Very American answer. <laughs> totally. <laughs> For me, it's it's the World Cup. I, it, the best thing about it is that it's a month long. I mean, the, the World Series is over after a week and the Super Bowl is one day. I fell in love with soccer about 10 years ago. And I, let me tell you, I, it's hard to work these days. I'm, <laughs> you're lucky I'm here right now because the game is going on right now. And don't tell me what happens because I'm going to watch it later. All right. I will. And are you the same about March Madness? Yes. All encompassing, all, you know, on the TVs at all times is, is, right. the, is the way to go. George? Well, I'm going to go the other way without denigrating the World Series, which I've been to and I love, and the World Cup, which is, again, you know, it's just an amazing spectacle. The Super Bowl, because it is just one day, three hours, four hours, with a big show in the middle of it, the intensity of the atmosphere at a Super Bowl is just something I just can't imagine is duplicated anywhere else. It's just an incredible spectacle from beginning to end and, and, and so compact. It's an amazing experience. 
everything you've all three of you said I pushes me one way or another. So really great points. I, of course, grew up with the Pirates, and then I was a baseball journalist. So going back to my loyalty series, most pleasant, most social. We are out of time. Thank you so much to Katie, Aaron, and George. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, at least for the time being. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. And these tend to be one-on-one conversations in depth with either writers or representatives of important ideas in the news. This past week, we posted a conversation with climate reporter Sarah Kaplan about takeaways from the COP27 summit. Go to patreon.com slash talking feds to check out the great stuff we have there. And it's also a really helpful way to support the show and keep us as we are among any prominent show in our category, lean and mean as far as commercials go. Submit your questions to talkingfeds.com slash contact. Whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Laurel Feldner, David Littman, Emma Maynard, and Kalena Tano. Thanks very much to Poppy Montgomery for explaining the legal concept of severance. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Class, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.